This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. On December 22, 1927, 49-year-old John Duval Gluck Jr. was summoned to the offices of Bird S. Kohler, the Public Welfare Commissioner. 60-year-old Kohler was responsible for investigating New York's charities for potential fraud. And at the top of his list was the well-established Santa Claus Association. Kohler took in the man sitting in front of him. John Gluck wore a fashionable trench coat and bowler hat. His moustache was freshly waxed and he wore round spectacles, a new addition to his trademark dapper style. Gluck didn't look like a man dedicated to helping the needy. Based on his appearance and confident manner, Kohler would have guessed he was a wealthy businessman, even a tycoon. Someone who was profiting from his line of work, which was exactly what Kohler believed was happening. Kohler wasted no time with pleasantries. He asked Gluck pointed questions about his so-called charity. How much money was the Santa Claus Association bringing in? Who was in charge of the group's finances? And what was the status of the famous Santa Claus building? But Gluck expertly evaded each question until Kohler grew impatient. He demanded that Gluck hand over the organization's financial documents. Gluck refused. It was three days away from Christmas and a formal inquiry into his association's history would divert attention from the charity's entire purpose, answering children's letters to Santa Claus. Surely, Kohler didn't want to be responsible for ruining Christmas for hundreds of needy children. It was a diversion, and a good one at that. So the commissioner acquiesced. The inquiry could wait. Gluck was free to go. Gluck strolled out of Kohler's office with a smirk. He dodged yet another official investigation. As he walked down the streets of Manhattan, he was certain of just one fact. His reputation as the Santa Claus man made him untouchable. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. 
Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Last week, we covered the rise of John Duval Gluck Jr., otherwise known as the Santa Claus Man. We heard how Gluck built a charitable empire by answering children's Christmas letters and how he created a sterling reputation for himself and his association. And finally, we discovered how the trust he'd built through years of successful fundraising was just a starting piece in a longer con. This week, we'll explore how John Gluck's fundraising grew into brazen, large-scale fraud. We'll follow Gluck as he expands the association's reach beyond the holiday season, bringing money in year-round. And ultimately, we'll learn how his 15-year scam crumbled at the feet of Public Welfare Commissioner Bird S. Kohler. Christmas in New York would never be the same. December 25, 1914, was a good day. It was John Duval Gluck Jr.'s 37th birthday and the Santa Claus Association's most successful Christmas yet. In the span of one month, Gluck and his volunteers helped give 36,000 of New York's neediest children gifts. And as he looked around at the buzz of activity swirling around him in the Association's headquarters, he knew that he was sitting on top of a gold mine. After two successful Christmas seasons, aided by Gluck's masterful publicity skills, the Santa Claus Association had become world-renowned. Newspapers praised him for reintroducing the Christmas spirit into the jaded hearts of New Yorkers. The city eagerly read about the poor children who were delighted to find dolls, toys, and sweets under their bare Christmas tree. And with each story, the people of New York reached for their pocketbooks. Which was exactly what Gluck was counting on. He knew that the most successful way to raise money was by making people spend with their hearts, not their heads. According to psychologist Maria Konnikova, this is called the play. In Konnikova's book, The Confidence Game, this con involves a scammer telling a story that pulls at people's heartstrings. As Konnikova writes, once our emotions have been captured, feeling, at least in the moment, takes over from thinking. The heartwarming story Gluck told the public was simple. He helped impoverished children believe in Christmas by providing them with gifts and donations. But unlike most other con men, Gluck's claim was actually true. 
and he had a track record to prove it. This was also part of his con. For the last two years, Gluck had run a legitimate charity and successfully raised thousands of dollars for needy children across the city. So now that he'd earned New York's trust, it was time to reap the real reward of all his hard work. Gluck kicked off the 1915 Christmas season by campaigning for donations harder than ever. On December 10th, he told the press that the Santa Claus Association needed $1,000 to cover all their necessary postage. Nine days later, he doubled the number to $2,000. Gluck also told newspapers that the charity was $3,000 in debt, although he had no proof to back his claims. But the press took him at his word anyway, and soon the call to help the Santa Claus Association spread across New York City. Newspapers even helped promote Gluck's request for funds with some emotional manipulation of their own. That December, the Brooklyn Daily Times wrote, What are you going to do to bring Christmas cheer to some little trusting bit of humanity who still has all faith in the good old saint? but the donations actually went directly to Gluck. And as the chief financial officer of the group, he could spend the money as he saw fit without raising any suspicions. He collected more funds in 1915 than either of his previous years. And after whittling down the association's expenses, he was able to pocket the excess dollars for himself in the thousands. But the Santa Claus Association wasn't the only scheme that had Gluck siphoning off money meant for children. While he was drumming up fraudulent Christmas spirit, the con man also continued his publicity work with the United States Boy Scouts, or the USBS. When Gluck was first hired as the publicist for the USBS, he was promised 40% of every dollar he raised. Now, two years later, Gluck was taking home 50% and sometimes even 60% of all the funds he brought in. And the longer the operation was in business, the more corrupt it became. It was hard to track exactly how dishonest the USBS's leaders were because, like Gluck, the organization also didn't keep clear financial records but the young scouts never saw most of the money flowing into the USBS's coffers. They had to buy their own equipment and pay for weekend camping trips. This kind of blatant thievery was abhorrent to the USBS's rival organization, the Boy Scouts of America, or the BSA. The BSA was the USBS's larger, more legitimate counterpart, and unlike the USBS, the Boy Scouts of America never misappropriated the funds raised for their troops. They had a squeaky clean reputation, one that Gluck and the United States Boy Scouts glommed onto. Many donors who gave money to Gluck and the USBS believed they were actually giving to BSA. And Gluck did his best to encourage this mix-up for as long as possible. In fundraising letters, he even mimicked statistics from the BSA to fool the unobservant donor. For example, 
When the Boy Scouts of America announced their target goal of one million members, the USBS parroted the same number to their donors. With no formal paper trail, this excessive corruption was hard to track, but it didn't go entirely unnoticed. As more charities sprouted up in America, efforts were made to curb the rampant theft among these institutions. One of these was the Charity Organization Society. The Charity Organization Society, or COS, was a group originally created in response to urbanization and the changes that it brought to American cities. Its initial goal was to alleviate poverty. But in the 1910s, it dedicated itself to cracking down on inefficiency and waste, specifically within charities that claimed to help the poor. As part of this effort, the COS investigated groups like USBS that spent more money on its leaders and its board of directors than on the actual boys it claimed to help. The COS couldn't find enough on the USBS to shut the organization down entirely. But in the course of their investigation, they noticed one name appearing over and over again. John Duval Gluck Jr. On the surface, Gluck was just a publicity man, but he was also tied to many of the USBS's most corrupt fundraising efforts. And the COS was surprised to learn that he ran another charity group, the Santa Claus Association. The COS was wary of Christmas, or more specifically, of the frivolous attitude that people adopted over the holidays. Christmas shopping and gifting had become excessive, and as spending increased, so did charity donations. But the COS had the same realization as Gluck. The holidays were the perfect time to take advantage of people's goodwill. And as the face of all this Christmas joy, Gluck's Santa Claus Association was an easy target to lock onto. So the COS investigated Gluck's association, but in their zeal to eradicate corruption, they missed the real target. Instead of going after Gluck, the organization cracked down on the children the association was claiming to help. Their logic was simple. The children of New York grew up in a sophisticated world. They couldn't possibly believe in Santa Claus. Therefore, the COS declared that the letters mustn't have come from kids in need. Instead, well-off children had written in, exaggerating their circumstances in the hopes that they could take advantage of the public's goodwill. The target was off Gluck's back for the time being. But it wasn't long before the authorities would come breathing down his neck again. And this time, they wouldn't be so easily distracted. Coming up, Gluck grows arrogant after dodging a bullet with the COS, but his bravado catches the attention of Assistant District Attorney Edwin Kilrow. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
with a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. Days before his 38th birthday, John Duval Gluck Jr. narrowly escaped the crosshairs of the Charity Organization Society, an institution hell-bent on bringing down con artists like him. But instead of feeling grateful, he was infuriated. The implication that children had lied their way into receiving gifts insulted Gluck. But not because he believed in their innocence. Rather, because the accusations tarnished the Santa Claus Association's good reputation. Though he was skimming off the top, Gluck had created a formula to ensure that the association only sent gifts to kids in need, implying otherwise would cast doubt on Gluck's effectiveness. But ever the publicist, Gluck also realized that he could use this kind of controversial press to bring even more attention to the Santa Claus Association. And so, Gluck wrote in to the New York Times to address the absurd accusations. His strategy paid off. By the end of the Christmas season, the Santa Claus Association answered letters from 50,000 children and raised thousands of dollars in donations. The glowing response to Gluck's letters gave him another idea, one that would allow him to capitalize on the media attention and bring more money into the organization year-round, his biggest project yet. So on Christmas Day of 1915, as the Santa Claus Association celebrated its most triumphant year, Gluck gathered the volunteers in the center of his offices. A few were surprised to look around and find that a host of reporters had joined them, with cameras at the ready. Gluck waited until the crowded floor fell silent. All eyes were trained on him. Once he had everyone's attention, Gluck addressed the assembled volunteers and reporters in a calm tone. He said, The peculiar nature of our work calls for a building of our own. The room was abuzz with anticipation as Gluck continued his announcement. His plan was to build a structure in the center of New York City. It would house the offices of the Santa Claus Association, as well as other charities that Gluck deemed friendly to the cause. It would also feature a toy market where sellers could display their latest products of the season. And out front, the building's crown jewel would be a giant stained glass window featuring Santa Claus himself in bright red and white. Gluck didn't have blueprints or permits for this building. In fact, he didn't have any documentation at all 
to show how it would be made. But that didn't stop the conman from stating that the structure would cost $300,000 to build, over $7 million today. And Gluck declared that the Santa Claus Association would begin accepting donations for the building immediately. Once again, the newspapers were on Gluck's side. Rather than laugh at the idea that the city needed such a building, they were delighted with the concept. The New York Sun, Gluck's biggest supporter, printed the following after the announcement. Where the money will come from is the simplest problem in the world, and it is self-evident that nearly everybody who can possibly afford it will be delighted to give something to the erection of a building in the gentleman's honor. The Santa Claus building became the center of Gluck's fundraising strategies. For the next two years, the association's volunteers collected donations effortlessly and continued to line Gluck's pockets in the process. Part of the reason Gluck had such an easy time selling the world on this massive project was because of a concept psychologist Robert Cialdini calls the principle of consistency. In his book, Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion, Cialdini has this to say about consistency. Once people make a decision, take a stand or perform an action, they will face an interpersonal pressure to behave in a consistent manner with what they have said or done previously. In the case of the Santa Claus Association, this means that once people formed their opinions of the organization, it was extremely difficult for them to adjust those ideas later. Even when Gluck began asking for more and more funds every year, the principle of consistency prevented most of his supporters from asking where the money was going. After all, if they didn't speak up earlier, then there was no logic behind asking questions now, four years into the project. And so they continued to give and the funds for Gluck's sham Santa Claus building kept pouring in. Gluck never recorded exactly how much money he pocketed from the Santa Claus Association. However, his lifestyle changed drastically. In early 1916, he married actress Simona Boniface, and soon after the pair moved uptown into a pristine new apartment. By 1917, when Gluck was 39 years old, the couple maintained an excessively wealthy lifestyle. They spent thousands on clothes and accessories, regular tables at New York's fanciest restaurants, and even a car, a luxury in those days. But even this wasn't enough for Gluck and his new bride. As their spendthrift ways intensified, so did Gluck's demands on his donors. And soon, his increasingly dubious fundraising practices brought him to the attention of the authorities. In July of 1917, Julius Kruchnit, the chairman and director of the railway company Southern Pacific, discovered something surprising. He learned from a friend that his name was listed as one of the United States Boy Scouts' honorary commissioners. There was just one problem. Kruchnit 
never agreed to the title. Worse yet, when he received the invitation from the USBS, he explicitly declined the offer from the man who reached out, John Duval Gluck Jr. Kruchnit immediately contacted the USBS leadership and demanded an explanation. But before Gluck could set the record straight, the New York Times caught wind of the story. Reporters from the Times reached out to the other honorary commissioners listed in the latest batch of USBS fundraising letters. They soon discovered that not a single person on the list gave permission for their name to be used. But Gluck, as always, had a plausible explanation. Unless they received an explicit no from the people they reached out to, the USBS took their silence to mean that they had permission to use the person's name. In the case of Julius Kruchnit, Gluck explained, there had been a mix-up within their office, but the mistake was easily rectified. But this was just the tip of the iceberg. As news of the scandal spread, a sponsor of the USBS stepped forward, S.B. Habicht. While reading about the organization, he realized he'd recently sent them a check for $25. At the time, he believed that he'd donated to the Boy Scouts of America. But now, he understood he'd been tricked into donating to the far less scrupulous copycat organization. The combination of these two scandals ultimately landed the USBS in front of New York's assistant district attorney, Edwin Kilroe. The results of Kilroe's investigation sent shockwaves through the charities of New York. The fraudulent USBS was shut down for good. But most importantly, it was the first step that led to Gluck's downfall. In December of 1917, 38-year-old John D. Gluck Jr. went before Assistant DA Edwin Kilroe to be questioned in connection to the recent USBS scandals. Kilroe's findings were conclusive. In his interrogation, Gluck revealed that of the $1,277 he brought into the USBS during a recent fundraising spree, he pocketed $823, or 64% of the total sum. The USBS's finances proved just as shady. The organization claimed to have raised $42,000 in donations in 1917 alone, and according to their books, they spent only $9,000 on expenses, all of which were undocumented. The remaining $33,000 was entirely unaccounted for. Kilroe's findings painted a clear picture. The USBS, and especially Gluck, was a fraud under the guise of a charitable organization. But even armed with all this information, Kilroe couldn't charge Gluck or his fellow cronies. The lack of records tied his hands. There simply wasn't enough evidence to pin the crooks down and one significant loophole made it nearly impossible to arrest them. Nothing that Gluck was doing was truly illegal. 
The regulations governing charities at the time were scant, not to mention that commissions on fundraising were common. There were no rules that dictated how much charity organizers could take from fundraised money, whether it was 2% or 92%. This was just one of the many reasons the Charity Organization Society tried cracking down on groups like the USBS. Ultimately, Kilroe was only able to give the USBS a slap on the wrist. Gluck breathed a sigh of relief at the narrow escape, but he wasn't out of the woods yet. The Boy Scouts of America soon filed a lawsuit against the USBS. They claimed that because the copycat organization failed to uphold the values of the Boy Scouts, that it had smeared their good name. So much so, that they had to stop using the term. The lawsuit raged on for two years before the USBS was forced to settle. In March of 1919, 41-year-old John Duval Gluck Jr. sat in the courthouse, devastated. After fighting tooth and nail for years, they had failed. The USBS no longer had legal use of the words Boy Scout. This effectively left the BSA as the only group that could claim the term. The court's decision basically rendered the USBS powerless. Gluck was heartbroken by the decision. In 1919, the USBS was his main source of income. The Santa Claus Association was still bringing in thousands of dollars of donations. But with the amount of publicity it generated each year and its spotless record, it was dangerous to siphon too much off the top. The association was his masterpiece, and he was wary of spoiling his years of effort. In addition, Gluck's reputation was damaged. He knew that if he stayed president of the Santa Claus Association, the scandal would follow him there and ruin the organization he'd worked so hard to build. So, head heavy, he stepped away and stayed out of the press as much as possible. In the process, Gluck gave up his many connections in the theater world and his glamorous lifestyle. And soon, he even lost his wife. As it turned out, Simona Boniface grew less interested in Gluck as the USBS money dried up. The couple divorced in the wake of the scandal. Samuel Brill, one of the owners of the Brill Brothers Men's Clothing Company, took over the association until things blew over, and Gluck spent the next three years biding his time. But while he waited, the country, and especially New York City, was rapidly changing. July of 1921 ushered in a new decade of opulence and wealth in America. New Yorkers were unconcerned with fraudulent charities when there was so much money going around. And the COS continued to fret, but like before, their hand-wringing was mostly ineffective against the wave of excess spending. Millionaires were springing up every day faster than ever before, and with World War I behind them, Americans were far more focused on the future than the past. It was the Jazz Age. 
And in 1922, Gluck, now 44 years old, took full advantage of the city's goodwill. New York had forgiven and forgotten, and the city was more spirited than ever. Gluck took this moment to step back into the role of Santa Claus. With Brill's blessing, Gluck resumed his oversight of the association, and he marked the new period in the organization's life with some good old-fashioned celebrity publicity. On November 24, 1922, Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, two of the world's most famous actors, arrived at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in New York City. Fairbanks and Pickford agreed to help promote the start of the 1922 holiday season, the first with Gluck back at the helm of children's Christmas letters. Gluck met the stars in the hotel lobby and walked them to their corner suite, where he had arranged everything for the publicity stunt. A crowd of reporters and photographers scurried after them. As Douglas and Mary entered the room, they were surprised and delighted that Gluck remained true to his word. He had installed a temporary telegraph machine that connected to 25 cities across the country, allowing the stars to type a message and send it to each city simultaneously. As the actors stepped up to the machine, Gluck slipped Mary a piece of paper. In a few short minutes, telegraphs across America lit up with Gluck's words: "The Santa Claus Association is open for business." When he resumed his role at the Santa Claus Association, Gluck's fundraising tactics became more aggressive than ever. After three years of laying low, he was ready to take cash hand over fist once again. Capitalizing on the success of the Pickford-Fairbank telegraph message, Gluck threw giant parties with high-profile guest lists, organized fundraising drives, and continued touting the long-awaited Santa Claus building. For the next five years, his efforts were on overdrive, and money flooded the association, just like old times. It seemed Gluck was never out of ideas. And this time, his tactics became even more brazen. In 1927, loyal donors received a different kind of fundraising letter in the mail. 49-year-old Gluck was trying a new strategy: the gift-giving committee. As the letter explained, the committee was designed to cut out the middleman. Donors were busy people. But being busy shouldn't prevent someone from donating a gift to the poor children of New York. So the committee would buy the gifts and answer the letters from the children on behalf of their donors. All they had to do was cut a check to the Santa Claus Association, and their part would be complete. It would be a $100 donation. Today, that amounts to almost $1,500. This, of course, was just a more direct method to funnel cash straight into Gluck's pockets. Fourteen years into the operation, he believed that as long as he maintained the facade of the Santa Claus man, he would continue to be seen as a hero in the eyes of New York. But, unfortunately for Gluck, 
this wasn't the case. Gluck continued to maintain that the Santa Claus Association was bustling with activity and volunteers and that the organization was only growing. But if anyone were to go visit the association's Manhattan headquarters, they would see that only a handful of volunteers continued to work for the charity. And most of them were growing disillusioned with the man in charge. They were slowly realizing that Gluck's latest fundraising schemes were all tactics to raise as much money as possible, not for the children, but for himself. The rumors from these volunteers reached the Charity Organization Society, who, after years of tracking the institution's growth, were ready to take down the Santa Claus Association once and for all. But they knew that the group was so well established, it would take a higher power to wipe it off the map. Coming up, Gluck goes to battle with Commissioner Kohler. And this time, the greed of the Santa Claus Association is exposed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Now, back to the story. In 1927, 49-year-old John Duval Gluck Jr. reveled in the Santa Claus Association's success and the luxurious lifestyle it afforded him. Rumors swirled around the former publicist, but there was no concrete proof that he was, in fact, skimming from the donations. But with the latest batch of fundraising letters flooding the mailboxes of donors across New York City, the public knew serious money was flowing into the organization. The Charity Organization Society finally saw their window to hone in on the association they'd been watching for years. And so, the watchdog group turned to Commissioner Bird S. Kohler to lead an investigation. 60-year-old Kohler was a shrewd man with a tidy mustache and a sterling reputation. He had spent most of his career fighting the excesses of the Jazz Age and the corruption that followed it. In the past three years alone, he had brought down a number of charities that claimed to help veterans, needy children, and young women. Kohler started his investigation 
by bringing Gluck in for questioning. Gluck wasn't surprised by the summons. Other smaller inspectors had tried to bring his group down before, and each time they had survived. On December 22, 1927, Gluck put fresh wax on his moustache and headed to Kohler's office, located in the Manhattan Municipal Building downtown. Gluck barely had time to take off his coat and sit across from Kohler's desk before the commissioner launched into his questioning. He wanted to know all about how Gluck's organization worked, where the money went, and who was taking from the pot. Gluck barely flinched under Kohler's intense line of questioning. Like any good con man, Gluck sidestepped every question that might have an unfavorable answer and pleaded ignorance at every turn. When the allocation of money came up, Gluck claimed he needed to check the books, which, of course, were located back in the offices. But as the interrogation dragged on, Gluck grew frustrated. He told Kohler that he couldn't spare any more of his time so close to the holiday season. Unless Kohler wanted to delay his charity's work, he was leaving. Kohler was forced to let Gluck go. But the next day, he sent an auditor to the Santa Claus Association's office. He found the huge offices in the Knickerbocker building were barely manned. Contrary to previous years, there were just five volunteers answering letters. It was hard to believe they could handle the thousands of pieces of mail Gluck claimed were coming in, when just a couple years prior, it took an entire organization. As suspicious as this was, the auditor got no further than Kohler did. Gluck immediately ushered him out, explaining that Christmas was just two days away and they couldn't deal with an investigation at the moment. Gluck realized that if Kohler came back, the association would be in dire straits. And so, his lies began to snowball. He took to the press to further his case as an innocent man. Throughout Gluck's career, he demonstrated he had no issue lying as much as it took to further his goals. And according to a study published in the journal Nature Neuroscience, doubling down on his crimes was only natural. The study explained that lying oftentimes becomes a slippery slope. What may begin as a small fib becomes a more elaborate fiction. In other words, the more someone doesn't tell the truth, the more comfortable they are telling more extensive lies. And so, when Gluck found himself in Kohler's crosshairs, he had no qualms about talking his way out of the problem. He hired a lawyer, and together they spoke to reporters, explaining that for 14 years, the Santa Claus Association had provided a selfless service. Yet another brazen lie. He also explained that the recent inquiry into the group's legitimacy stemmed from charity forgers and pirates, his names for the charity organization's society. He insisted it was not based on any actual wrongdoing. In this respect, Gluck was actually right. Without his cooperation, Kohler had very little legal leverage to continue investigating the group. 
but this didn't stop Kohler from trying once again after the holidays passed. This time, the group couldn't use Christmas as an excuse. Gluck prepared for Kohler's continued inquiry, presented financial statements, but without supporting documents or receipts as proof. Kohler was shocked to find that the group had spent $19,800 in 1927. Of that money, only $9,879 went to the children, while the other half was listed for salaries and expenses. The amount allotted for salaries and personal shopping increased exponentially with each year, and a $10,000 savings fund somehow disappeared from the books between 1924 and 1927. The results confirmed Kohler's suspicions. The group was wildly corrupt, and their leader, John Duval Gluck Jr., was nothing more than a con man. But even with this evidence, Kohler couldn't convict Gluck because technically, everything listed in his books was above board, and there were no regulations against paying salaries out of donated money. As for personal shopping, Gluck could easily claim that this was the gift-giving committee in action. In January of 1928, Kohler was forced to terminate his investigation into Gluck and the Santa Claus Association. Eleven years after Assistant District Attorney Kilrow's investigation, Commissioner Kohler had run into the same problems. There just wasn't enough proof. But Kohler and many government officials were now aware that Gluck's organization was nothing more than a long con in action. Kohler was preparing to leave his office within the year, but before he left, he was determined to make sure that the Santa Claus Association was revealed for what it really was. And so, as the 1928 holiday season approached, he had one last-ditch idea. Kohler wasn't able to go after Gluck legally, but he did have another option. Cut the operation off at its source. Kohler went to Charles H. Clarahan, head of the New York City Postal Inspection Service, and told him everything he'd learned about Gluck and the Santa Claus Association. Clarahan, like Kohler, was just as eager as Kohler to cut off excess spending. So after reviewing all the evidence Kohler had presented, he agreed it was time to shut the association down. He decided to change the policy established in 1911 that allowed individuals to answer Christmas letters. Now, only established charities that were verified by the COS were allowed to take on the role of Santa Claus. And Gluck's wasn't one of them. The policy was officially implemented on December 6, 1928. But Gluck didn't learn about it until three days later, when he picked up a newspaper with the headline, Fake Charity Caused Post Office to Change Disposal System. Gluck 
was flawed. The press, which had once been his most valuable tool, had turned against him. The same newspapers that once praised Gluck's work now gleefully reported his downfall. But he refused to accept that his organization was finished. He tried telling his own side of the story to the press. He leaned on the association's long history of answering letters and pointed to accolades from other renowned charity organizations, such as the Board of Child Welfare. But it was too little, too late. Kohler had already exposed Gluck's fraud to any allies that he would try to call on. 1928 was the first holiday season that Christmas letters weren't answered, and by the end of the year, it was clear that the Santa Claus Association was officially finished. In the years that followed, Gluck tried to re-establish himself as the good Samaritan he'd once been. But his ruined reputation made it impossible for anyone to trust him again. Before long, he moved to Miami with his new wife, Gertrude, where he eventually found work as a real estate broker. He never worked in fundraising again, and after the Great Depression in 1929, new federal regulations were put in place to ensure that men like John Duval Gluck Jr. couldn't use charities to line their wallets. But despite the scandalous end of the Santa Claus Association, the idea of answering children's Christmas wishes persisted. Several years after Gluck was revealed to be a crook, well-established charities with proper oversight took up the mantle. And today, the United States Postal Service has made the whole process electronic. They launched Operation Santa, allowing individuals to adopt letters online and ship gifts directly to needy children, much like Gluck's system back in 1913. It seems that no matter what the year or the circumstances, the world will always have a soft spot for holiday spirit. And regardless of its intentions, there's no denying that John Gluck Jr. has forever made his mark on Christmas. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on John Duval Gluck Jr., amongst the many sources we used, we found The Santa Claus Man by Alex Palmer extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. 
Sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Con Artist was written by Liz Dorovitsin, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>